Amen. You may be seated. We've been talking in these uh, Sunday morning services for the last several weeks about divine guidance being led by the Holy Spirit. And we've used uh, three basic, or three, we've primarily used three scriptures as a uh, foundation or text scriptures for the, this teaching. The first is in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. It says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. We've also looked at Romans chapter 8 and verse 14, which says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. And then verse 16 tells us how he's going to lead us. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God. Concerning that Romans eight sixteen, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That has to mean a lot more than just to know that we're saved. Amen? I don't believe it's talking about that he bears witness with us so that we know that we're saved, but rather everything that belongs to us because we are children of God. Folks, if, if our eyes were opened, if something happened, and our eyes were really open to who we are, what power we have because we're in the family of God, and how that power resides in us and works in us, our world, what part of the world we touch and have contact with would never be the same. You know, you think about it, Paul prayed what he considered to be as inspired by the Holy Ghost. He prayed a prayer for the Ephesians that lets us know that, well, he said he prayed the same thing for all, all the churches. Different words uh, are used in describing some of it. But the prayer that God gave Paul by the Holy Ghost, the prayer that the Holy Ghost inspired Paul to pray was to have our eyes open to see who we are. Not that God would give us something more. I think so often we're looking for God to give us something instead of recognizing what we really have and how what we really have is sufficient to do the job and to put us over in life. Paul identifies in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, he identifies the threefold nature of man, the makeup of man. He said, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about the three parts of man, spirit, soul, and body. Now, folks, if we've already seen, and, and we just referred to these scriptures, Romans eight fourteen again, for as many as are led by the spirit, they are the sons of God. God wants to lead us. He wants to bring us into victory, and everything God does is victorious. Any and every leading, no matter how small, the, the least, the most minute leading of the Holy Ghost is always designed to bring victory into our lives. It's always designed that way. You know, when Jesus was tempted of the devil in Matthew chapter 4, he had been in the, um, in the wilderness. He departed into the wilderness to fast. Before he entered into his ministry. He had been baptized by John in the Jordan River. And the, the uh, record of all those that were there. Is that the Holy Ghost came down upon him. Landed upon him. Came down from heaven like a bird would fly from the sky. And he landed on him and stayed there. The anointing of God was present. God spoke from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And at, at that point Jesus immediately went into the wilderness. To prepare for the ministry, the three years of earthly ministry that God had given him. And while he was there, the devil came and tempted him. Three different temptations, three different responses from Jesus, but all, all the same principle about how to deal with when the devil attacks. First thing the devil uh, tempted him with, he said, if you're the son of God, then command these stones to be made bread. Now, folks, if that wasn't a real temptation, then Jesus was a partner to a frog. That, make, that would make him a liar. He really had the, the, the power, the ability to turn those stones into bread. Otherwise, it's not a real temptation. I mean, if the devil came and said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be made into bread. Jesus could have easily said, if, this was, if it had been the truth, Jesus could have easily said, no, it doesn't work that way. But he didn't. He answered and said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's equating the word of God 
and the, the benefits, the results that it produces for our spirit, the real us, the man on the inside, just as food provides for the body. Now, when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, what kind of life is he talking about? He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the life of God. He's saying the word of God is spirit food. It feeds your spirit. It equips your spirit. It fits your spirit. And nothing else in this world will. Nothing else in this world will. Jesus talked in, uh, uh, John tells us about Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Where Jesus prayed not only for his disciples, but for us. In the sense that he prayed for all those that would believe in him because of his disciples' word or preaching or teaching. Well, that's us. Everything we've got from the disciples is the Bible. And that Bible is the incorruptible seed of God's word whereby we are born again. So he's praying for us. And one of the things he prays, John 17, 17, he said, Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Now the word sanctify there means to separate or to consecrate to God. To separate or to consecrate unto God. Now how can we be separated unto God? What does it mean when he talks about us being separated unto God? Or what does he mean when he talks, us, talks about us being consecrated Unto God. Could he mean anything other than being separated from the world? Could he mean anything other than being consecrated so that we look different than the world looks? If that's not what he's praying, what's he praying? Separated unto the world or separated unto God, different from the world. Now turn with me to John chapter 8. We looked at this a little last week, but I can't seem to get away from this. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus has ministered a great deal to the crowd that's assembled there, and he's gotten some real results. Now, remember, in Jesus' uh, day here on the earth, it's not like he could have altar calls to get people saved, because the work of salvation hadn't yet been accomplished. But he did and could affect the minds of, And the will of a lot of people to convince them, to show them through word and deed who he was. And a lot of people believed, a lot of the people, uh, even under the Jewish religious community, a lot of them believed from what they saw and heard from Jesus. And when I say believed, I mean by that they believed that he was the Messiah, the promised one. Notice in verse 31, John chapter 8, verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. Now I want you to see that. The Jews believed. They believed that he was the son of God. They believed that he was the Messiah. So then he said to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Folks, Jesus seemed to recognize and draw a distinction between believers and disciples. Thank God for the people that believe, but thank God more for the ones that continue in the word and become disciples. And notice the disciples that the Bible, and and this is really the Great Commission in uh, Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Literally, it means go into all the world and make disciples. The words that are used is talking about discipleship, not just believers. Go into all the world and make disciples. So he said to the Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Believing is a good start. Believing in Jesus is a good start. That equates to us uh, with salvation. Salvation, giving your heart to the Lord, coming to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That action, that determination of man's will, which brings them into the new birth experience where old things pass away and all things become new. 
That's a great starting point, but it's just a starting point. It's just the beginning of the eternal life that we can have and experience and enjoy here on the earth. Most people are waiting for eternal life when they get to heaven. But the Bible talks a lot about the life of God and the benefits it provides for us here. So he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Notice verse 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now notice what he said. He said, continuing in the word brings you to the knowledge of the truth. Continuing in the word brings you to the knowledge of the truth. And notice what that truth will do. And the truth will make you free. Now, what is freedom in God's eyes? We could get real religious here and we could say, well, freedom is separation or deliverance from spiritual death. It's being born again. It's coming into the family of God. Thank God all that's true. But how many of God's children do you think he wants to live down here on the earth? Saved, maybe even spirit-filled, but living in defeat. God didn't send Jesus to change us, to make us new creatures in him so that we live defeated lives. So instead of saying the truth will make you free, would we be doing an injustice to the scripture if we translated it this way? If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will bring you into victory. That would have to be part of what Jesus is talking about, isn't it? If not, what else would it be? What good is it in being free if you're not victorious? What good is it being free if you're not separated from and delivered from the power of the devil that leads us into poverty and sickness and so forth? So being free means living in victory. It would have to. Jesus said to his disciples, the works that he did, we would do also. Well, I don't ever see him defeated. Do you? Any defeat he experienced here on this earth at all? In any way whatsoever? Even dying on the cross, a criminal's death. A cursed death. That was a step into victory through the new birth. So he said, Jesus said, if you continue in my word, just like he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will bring you into victory. The truth will make you victorious. Now remember again what we've said over in John chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus prayed, sanctify them through thy truth, or through thy word rather. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. Folks, the words word and truth are pretty much interchangeable in Scripture. There are different words from the Greek that, uh, that are translated into the English. But as far as the meaning of God, as far as, as, far as the intent of God is concerned. The word and truth are interchangeable because the word is truth. God's word is truth. Now with that in mind, turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That last phrase, reasonable service, is in most translations translated spiritual worship. We worship God in spirit by presenting our bodies a living sacrifice. See, we charismatics have gotten to the point where we think that worshiping in spirit just means singing in tongues. Well, thank God for the benefit and the blessing that singing in tongues brings into our lives. But that's not the spiritual worship that Jesus talked about. Remember in John chapter 4, verse 24, talking with the woman at the well of Samaria. He said, God is the spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He's talking about bringing your body in line. 
He's talking about letting your body, your flesh, be dominated by the man on the inside, the new birth, the recreated human spirit that takes place when we make Jesus our Lord and, Lord and Savior. Notice he goes on in verse 2 of Romans 12. He says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This word renewed means reversal by repetition. Reversal by repetition. We know from other scriptures, for example, in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, Joshua taking over for Moses gets instructions from God on how to be the leader of his people. He says, this book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So even in the Old Testament, it's a principle that the Jews understood. Meditating in the Word, which is saying the Word to yourself over and over and over again. Repeating the Word. Repeating the promise of God. It plants the Word into your heart. It waters the Word that's planted. And it's the, the key to victory. It's the key to bringing you into success. So just as Paul is inspired to say to the Romans, chapter 12 and verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice why he wants us to be transformed, so that we can walk in the perfect will of God. That good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God doesn't have three wills. He's talking about walking in the will of God. Well, walking in the will of God is walking in victory, isn't it? Is there ever a place or ever a time where the Holy Ghost wants us to, to fail? Failure is certainly an option, but it's not the plan of God. So he's saying, Paul is saying the same thing that God told Joshua. Speak the word. Speak the word and it will lead you into victory. Here in Romans 12 too, where it says that you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. The word proved there means to determine by experience. So he's saying if you want to experience the will of God in your life, if you want to experience the victory of God's plan in your life, his plan and his purpose for you. If you want to be successful in everything that you do, say the word. Speak the word. I wonder if that's what Jesus meant when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, sure it is. He's saying it in a different way than Paul did. But it's all the same meaning. Then therefore, can we conclude this? Can we conclude that the areas of our lives that we will experience the will of God or experience the victory of Jesus' resurrection in are limited to the areas that we're speaking the word? See, you can be conformed to the image of God or you can be renewing your mind to the truth concerning healing but never get a handle on the truth of God's word concerning finances and provision. I can give you a good example of this. John Lake said, he, he confessed and admitted that he never did understand what the scriptures about prosperity and provision had to do with. He was a man that was used by God in such a ma magnificent way. He went to Southern Africa, South Africa, and he started a, a, a work of God that really rivals the Apostle Paul. I mean, the healings, the miracles, and the things that were done openly that everybody saw and knew about were just phenomenal. But he always struggled financially. He always struggled financially. His, uh, the devil stirred up trouble with some of the people back here in the States that were supporting him. And his financial support was cut off. And he said, he admitted, I see what the scriptures say about God providing for us. But I just don't seem to be able to make them work. Well, how does a man do healing miracles and not be able to, to get a handle on the scriptures concerning prosperity? His belief in those two areas were totally different. Totally different. So here where Paul's talking about and be not conformed to the world. 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We know that that renewing of the mind means the confession of God's word. The more and more we speak God's word, the more and more it's planted, the seed is planted in our heart, the more and more it's watered in our heart, the more and more our souls are saved, as James said. The more and more our souls are transformed into the image of Christ rather than being conformed to the image of the world. So my point is simply this. If we're making confessions about God's word concerning healing, but we're not saying what God's word says concerning provision or peace or, or joy or righteousness or anything else, then we're only going to be transformed into the will of God in the area that we're confessing the word. That would have to be true, wouldn't it? I mean, how else could it be? We know, unfortunately, we know that as soon as we're born again, we don't all of a sudden have a great knowledge of the Word. We know that we don't all of a sudden, immediately, as fast as you can snap your fingers, we know that that new birth doesn't affect everything about our lives. It affects everything about the, the spirit life. It affects everything about the born-again, recreated human spirit. Paul said, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature or a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, all things become new. We know that spiritually things are become new, but they're not made new in our bodies. Our bodies don't change to the new birth, and our souls don't even change to the new birth. So God sends his son Jesus to accomplish his mighty work of redemption, to buy us out of, through Jesus' precious blood, to buy us out of every evil work of the devil. He changes us. He makes us a new spirit and then puts his spirit on the inside of us and says, now use it to affect your body and your souls. And whether that ever happens or not is up to us. Wouldn't it be great if we could just pray one prayer and God would take care of the ever change that needs to be changed in our lives? Anybody ever been able to make something like that work? Of course not. Now, another interesting thing to me is that Paul discovers this through the conflicting desires of his body and his spirit. In Romans chapter 7, he goes into great detail to identify that the man on the inside always wants to do right. He recognized that the man on the inside always wanted to obey and follow the word, but the man on the outside didn't. Just as much as the man on the inside always wanted to obey God's word, the man on the outside always wanted to disobey God's word. And it brought him to an understanding of who he is. It brought him to an understanding that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Even though this desire of our flesh, this conflicting desire of our flesh with the desire of our spirit. The man made new. The man that Peter calls in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 4, the hidden man of the heart. The hidden man of the heart. Well, what's the hidden man of the heart hidden from? The five physical senses. Now, folks, here's something you need to be aware of, and that is this. No matter how much education we get, no matter how far we go into higher learning, our souls, our natural minds, only have information derived from the five physical senses. And that was a big change when Adam fell in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were created... They were made in the image and the likeness of God. God breathed his spirit into them. There was nothing about them that was flawed. There was nothing about them that was incomplete. But with God making them in the way that he did, where did their knowledge come from? I mean, they were born full grown. It's not like they were born as babies and they learned. Where was the source, or what was the source of their knowledge? The only knowledge they had was that which came from their heart, the spirit, the real man on the inside. So in the time period, whether it was short or long, I like to think it was long, but I don't know. In the time period between Adam and Eve being created, where God breathed the breath of life into them, breathed his own spirit into them, until they fell, Every bit of knowledge that they had, every physical activity that they, that they undertook, 
Every exercise of the dominion God created them to have here on the earth. Everything they did was a byproduct of the inside knowledge of God. It was a byproduct of the presence of God in their spirits. Not because Uncle Charlie told them to do this and it works like that. Everything they had was spiritually sourced. Everything they had. And at the fall, everything changed. Because when they fell through disobedience, when they broke the command of God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when that happened, their spiritual natures changed. Now their spirit's providing them no information whatsoever. Their spiritual nature is now unrighteousness, having fallen from the righteousness of God. So where are they going to get their knowledge? Where are they going to get the foundation or the impetus for anything and everything that they do from the five physical senses? They immediately became slaves to their bodies, what their bodies wanted to do. There was no conflicting interest anymore like Paul talked about. There wasn't a conflicting interest with them before because they were willing to do and desiring to do everything from their spirit where God lived. But now when they fall, Everything becomes body-oriented. Everything becomes oriented toward their five physical senses. So when Paul's talking here about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, what is he talking about when he speaks of the confirmation of the world? He says, don't be conformed to the world. In other words, he's saying, don't be body-ruled. Don't be body-ruled. Don't rely on your own understanding or the things that you've learned just through natural experience. Even Proverbs talked about that. It talked about trusting the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Here's part of the conflict that Paul talked about. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, with your spirit. And what is it that equips or fits or feeds our spirit? Jesus said it was the word. So that means if we're going to be transformed into the victory of Jesus' resurrection. If we're going to be transformed into God's perfect will, that means one and only one thing, and that is what we do, how we operate, what we speak, has to come from the Word of God. Paul wrote in the book of Hebrews, I believe he was the author of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.12 says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, full of life and power, another translation says. Quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The only thing that can separate between soul and spirit is the Word of God. Now, your soul and your spirit can't be the same thing because if they could, they couldn't be divided. But the fact that they're able to be divided means that they're separate, just like other scripture tells us. And the only thing, the only thing the Bible ever tells us can separate between soul and spirit is the Word of God. Is the word of God. Sometimes people searching for. Looking for the, the uh, direction of God in their lives. They come upon situations where they ask themselves or ask others. I don't know if that's just me or if that's my spirit. Well that's the experience that Paul had in Romans chapter 7. He was trying to find out who he was. And he concludes that he is the real man on the inside. That he is the spirit man. He confirms this when he talks to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. He said I'm in a strait betwixt two. I've got a dilemma. A tough decision to make. Because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. Which is far better. But it's more needful for you. If I abide in the flesh. If I abide in the flesh. The I that he's talking about was the spirit man. And he said that spirit man wants to leave this body, leave this flesh and go be with Jesus, which is far better. But you need me to stay here in the flesh. Sounds like his body's just the house he lives in. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Now turn with me to, to uh, John chapter 14. I want you to see some things that Jesus said about the Holy Ghost.
Jesus is talking about going away and the disciples don't understand what he means. Let's start in verse 15. John 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Notice what Jesus calls the Holy Ghost, the comforter. Even the spirit of truth. Now, folks, we've already concluded, we've already seen in Scripture, again, John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy word, thy word is truth. Separate them unto yourself through the word. Consecrate them unto yourself through the word. So the word and the truth are the same thing. So if, and these are the same words that are used here. When Jesus calls the Holy Ghost the spirit of truth, he's saying the spirit of the word. The Holy Ghost is the spirit of the word. He's that which makes the Word of God come alive. He's that which is breathed into the Word life, the very life of God. Folks, this, word, this book, the Bible, is different than any other book there ever was. It affects people differently than anything else. If I go to lunch and take a big, thick book about anything else, nobody bats an eye. I take my Bible, and everybody in the, in the restaurant looks at me. People just know. If I take another book into a restaurant, the waitress will ask me what I'm reading. If I take a Bible into the restaurant, nobody says a word. Nobody wants to know what I'm reading. And they don't want to know what I might have to say about what I'm reading. So they completely ignore it. The word of God's alive. Amen. So he said, if I pray the father, he'll give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I want to compare a, another scripture with this real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Notice the natural man, the unsaved man. Or we might say it this way, the unrenewed mind of even Christians. See, if we don't renew our mind, even though the life of God has been imparted to our spirits, even though we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus, our minds are still operating as the natural man did. And that's why, because Christians don't take the time, don't put forth the effort, whether it's through ignorance or just laziness. Anybody, any Christian that does not renew their mind to the world is going to operate as natural men and women, and they won't receive the things of the Spirit of God either. It just flabbergasts me how you get people that are famous, people in politics or celebrities or whatever, will say on one hand that they're Christians, and then you see the way that they live. And we're left with the only conclusion that there is, and that is they're either lying about being Christians, or they have done absolutely nothing, placed no importance whatsoever in growth in God that would have an effect or an impact on their life and their behavior. It used to frost me to no end when our former president would talk about being a Christian and then do this Muslim stuff and bow down to Allah and all that kind of stuff. Folks, real Christians don't do that. Now, that's not to say he lied when he said he was a Christian. He may have. But it's possible, and it's not for me to judge, but it's possible that somebody could be saved and know so very little about the Bible, know so little, very little about spiritual things that they would act the same way they did before they got saved. That's possible. Like I said, it's not up to me to judge. Now, if God wants to give me that opportunity to judge, I'll be glad to take on that responsibility. (laughs) 
So, Lord, I'm available just if you need me. It's a good thing I'm not the judge. I'd accelerate some things in a big hurry. So Jesus said, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither know him. But you know him, because he dwells with you and shall be in you. Skip down a little bit to verse 26. But the comforter, here's the spirit of truth again, which is the Holy Ghost whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And shall bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, folks, you can't remember something you never knew. You get that, right? You can't remember something you never knew. So here it says that the, the spirit of truth, the spirit of the word, will do two things. He'll teach you. He'll teach you. Well, if he's teaching you from the word, he's teaching you the truth. If he's teaching you from the word, he's teaching you how to walk in victory. If he's teaching you from the word, he's talking about how to be set free. He's teaching you that which you need, that which is necessary to be transformed into experiencing the perfect will of God. And then after he teaches you, then he'll bring things to your remembrance from the word. So if he's teaching you the word and bringing to your remembrance things of the word, the word must be pretty important. Wouldn't you agree? Look at chapter 15. Chapter 15, Jesus is still talking about the Holy Ghost. Let's start in verse... uh, Well, let's skip down to verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth. Again, the Word is truth. He's the Spirit of the Word. Even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from thy Father, he shall testify of me. So the Holy Ghost will teach you the Word. He'll bring the Word to your remembrance. And he'll testify of Jesus. Look at chapter 16. Verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient, helpful, beneficial for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the, Holy, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Verse 13. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth. Well, let's back up to verse 12. Let me include verse 12 in this. Jesus said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Folks, timing is everything. Timing is everything. Now, the reason that they couldn't bear some things uh, at the time Jesus was talking to them has to be because they haven't been born again yet. But even the the Apostle Paul, where the book of Acts gives us a lot of information about how he was led of the Spirit of God into ministry, you can see on two separate occasions, Paul at one time wanted to go into Asia. Now, Asia would have been the area of Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and some of those other major cities that we know of through the Scriptures. But it says the Spirit of God would not let them go. He suffered them not. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how he told them not to go. But since it doesn't give us any any other information, I assume that it was by the inward witness. That's the primary way that God leads us. I think if, if uh, Paul would have had a vision about it, he would have told us. If there had been writing in the sky, don't go to Asia, the Bible would have mentioned that, wouldn't it? So since it doesn't tell us anything else, I'm left to assume that it was the inward witness, not to go. But then turn around three years later, they get in the same place, and God leads them into Asia, where they have the three-and-a-half-year revival in Ephesus. And the greatest results that Paul ever had in any one place. Same place. Different times. 
The timing wasn't right in one area, one respect, first respect. The timing was right in the second. So here he's talking about the spirit of truth. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Notice where he's going to guide us. He's going to guide us into all truth. If the word is truth, that means he's guiding us into all the word. He's guiding us into all the word. Now, I know my time is short, and so I won't go into a lot of detail concerning Paul's experience with being led by the Holy Ghost in the book of Acts and so forth. So let me focus on this part for the last few minutes instead. It is necessary for us to build a foundation of the Word of God in our lives to get the help of the Holy Ghost in action. If the Holy Ghost is going to guide us into all the truth, if He's going to guide us into the Word, if He's going to bring to our remembrance things that Jesus said, if He's going to teach us the truth, He's going to be teaching us the Word. If we don't have a foundation of God's Word in our lives, then number one, we're not going to be able to renew our mind to that particular area or any particular area other than that which we put the Word of God to work in. By that I mean we can't renew our mind to the truth of healing if we don't confess healing scriptures and put the Word of God into our spirit through the words of our mouth. And it's not God being against us. He leaves it up to us to do. I think so many Christians... Maybe the majority of Christians are leaving it up to God for whatever he wants to do in their lives. But he's already told us what he wants to do in our lives. He's told us he wants to lead us into victory. He told us he wanted us to be free. He told us he wanted us to live in the same victory that Jesus lived on the earth. And so we get Christians, again, maybe the majority of the church world, praying over and over and over, God, do something about this. I see this in healing a lot of times. People are praying, God, heal me. God, heal me. The Bible says in Psalm 107, verse 20, it says God sent his word and healed us. So they're asking God to do something apart from his word when the word of God is the power of God into healing. How's God supposed to answer that? The prayers come up from his children, people that Jesus paid the price for them to be healed. Prayers come up into heaven. God heal me. God heal me. God heal me. God looks over at Jesus and said, I did. But people are trying to substitute prayer for what only the word of God can do. Let me ask you a question. What's more important, breathing or eating? I'm not going to make that choice. Because <laughs> if I don't breathe, it won't matter if I eat. Okay. But if I just, pre- just breathe and don't eat, I'm not going to make it very long anyway. Those are two necessary things for our existence. Well, if prayer is like breathing and the Word of God is like eating... So much of the church world's prayer life is asking God to bypass what he set up and the system that he set up in in his word, the very power of the word of God that brings us into healing or victory or whatever, by getting God to do something in some other way. They're praying that God would violate his word. And he never will. And so you get these claims you get people looking at it and say well when I get to heaven I've sure got some questions for the Lord I don't know why God let this happen to me well folks if any of you guys are in that situation you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to find out just come ask me because we're all in the same boat because of all the same reasons 
If we're experiencing defeat or failure in one area of life, then it's only because we're not doing what's necessary to renew our minds to be, conform, or to be transformed to the image of Christ into the perfect will of God. Or else we're becoming weary in, in well-doing by standing in faith for it. That's the only choices. It's either we're not doing the word or things are taking longer than we expected them to in our stand or fight of faith. That's all it can be. It's not complicated. God didn't make Christianity complicated. He made it simple enough for everybody to get. One of the things that I have treasured so much over these last 10 years or so are the few times, and it's only a handful, maybe five times in the last 10 years, but those times where the Spirit of the Lord would, just as I was waking up in the morning, I don't know how to describe it, but that place just between asleep and awake, right at that place, as I've awakened in the morning, or started to awake, I'd have the Holy Ghost quote a scripture to me. And usually it's not even a whole scripture. Usually it's just a phrase. And it's always been ones that I knew. Now in one case it was one I forgot. But those times have kept me going. Those things that the Lord spoke to me. Now I've been confessing them myself. But it's different when I confess it to the Lord from when he confesses it back to me. I had the Lord say something to me about loving him that just changed my life. Because I've been confessing some things. I've been confessing Psalm 91, verses 14, 15, and 16. They go like this. Because he set his love upon me, I will deliver him. Because he's known my name, I'll set him on high. When he calleth unto me, I'll answer him. I'll be with him in trouble. I'll deliver him. I'll honor him. With long life, I'll satisfy him and show him my salvation. Well, I'd been confessing that for a long time. And just as I woke up one morning, I had the Lord say, because you've set your love on me. And I can't tell you the difference that made for me. Maybe it wouldn't affect you in the same way. I don't know. But I can't tell you the difference that it made for me to be the one confessing that I've set my love upon him and for God to recognize and say, you've set your love on me. so simple I mean how deep do you have to be to get that and I've had a handful of occasions like that that have just meant the world to me well what's the Holy Ghost doing he's guiding me into all truth he's guiding me into all truth another translation says he'll guide you into all reality I've started relying on that for a lot with the Holy Ghost. I've begun confessing that the Holy Ghost guides me into the reality of healing. He guides me into the reality of prosperity. He guides me into the reality of God's plan for my life. He'll guide you too. God cannot lie, folks. His word is real. His word is true. And the Holy Ghost will guide you into all reality. I remember when I first got around Brother Hagin, I'd listened to him a little bit before I got to Bible school in Tulsa. And so I had, I had a working knowledge of his ministry. I knew a little bit about his, him and his teaching and so forth. But when I got around Brother Hagin and saw the depth of the knowledge he had of the word of God... It intimidated me like you can't believe. Now, folks, I don't claim to be the smartest person in any room. But I don't ever expect to be embarrassed by the smartest person in the room. I've got enough intelligence to walk around, you know. But when I got around Brother Hagin and saw the, the depth of the Word of God that was in him, that had been a part of his life, that he made a part of his life, it intimidated me. And so I made some commitments to the Lord. I said, Lord, I want to be like that too. Unfortunately, it doesn't come from just wanting it. And so I commit myself to you. I commit myself to the word. 
but he's so far beyond anything that I think I might be able to attain. You're going to have to help me. And you know what I found out? I found out that God's not interested in me being compared to Brother Hagin in knowledge or anything else. That all he's looking for is for people to commit themselves to him. And the way you do that is put the word of God first place in your life. That's all he wants. That's all he needs. I may never attain the knowledge that I saw in Brother Hagin. But I know for a certainty that I've built the word of God into my life in such, to such a degree that he's all that matters. I can't remember the last time I didn't think, what does the word say about any situation that I encounter? My mind may not be renewed to know everything about every area, but my mind is renewed to know the word of God is the answer in every area. And according to the Bible, that pleases God. Build the word of God into your life. Begin to speak what God's word says about problem areas in your life. Start saying what God's word says. And be conscious of the fact that when you do speak God's word, you're feeding your spirit. You're developing your spirit. Folks, when you focus on that kind of thing, when you focus on the truth of God's word and what it was really sent and designed to do, behavior becomes secondary. You don't try to live or behave in such a way that pleases God because you're already pleasing to God because you put his word first. And it provides strength, not overnight, day by day, little by little. It provides strength to overcome the problem areas that you used to have. 